if I saw someone leading something and it was something good, you know, I kind of try and take lessons from that. But if it was something bad, you know, we try and take away what happened, why it happened and, and how would I do that differently? And so I started to kind of pick up role models, both almost negative and positive role models, negative ones who I'd see that I think I don't want to, I don't want to be a leader like that person's a leader. I want to be a leader like the other person. And so I kind of started to try and, you know, when things would happen and be that, you know, we, you know, situations where we're on operational missions and you've got people who are leading the formation, you know, on potentially big high profile missions and how did that person do what they did? How did they deal with something that didn't go quite according to plan? Um, and how did they approach that situation? Welcome to the How They Lead podcast, hosted by Benjamin Wade and Ben Stocken. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the world of high performance, showcasing examples of how individuals and teams can reach their full potential. Together, they'll be inviting amazing guests who have defined or represented high performance in their own right, from world record breakers to individuals who have achieved first in their fields. The How They Lead podcast will showcase a diverse range of guests, each with their unique stories and insights to share. So join us as we challenge traditional ways of doing things, explore new ideas, methods and possibilities, and evolve the way people perform. Paddy, Patrick, Kershaw, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, this is uh, one of our, our first few podcasts, the How They Lead podcast. We're inviting influential key people from high-performing teams from around the world to join us and have an open and honest and frank conversation about how they lead or how they've been led so that our listeners can use this as a free resource to tap into and understand how they could better themselves as individuals or within a business or within a team. Today, we've tapped into the Red Arrows, uh, Patrick Kershaw, fresh from a flying assortia, I believe, uh, earlier in the day. He's joined us from his hotel room. So we're going to hear a little bit more about the Red Arrows and the high performance that they achieve and how they achieve it. We did our flying draw very first sort of sorties, flying training together, following our commissioned officers training at Cranwell quite some time ago, back in early 2000s. Uh, and we'll probably hear a little bit more about your training from then and how you've ended up in the Royal Air Force Aerobatics display team. Ben, did you want to run a bit of an intro? Yeah, sure. I just want to be clear that when you say we, it wasn't we, it was it was these two. Well, um, so I, I've got no flying experience at all. So Patrick, when you're sharing your stories, um, you're going to have to you're going to have to just kind of dumb them dumb them down for for a rugby player who never quite made it into the skies. So Patrick, thank you very much. I I get the pleasure and the honour of asking you our very first question. You've got one sentence to answer this question. The question is. In one sentence, describe what your day-to-day approach is to leading people. Simply for me is uh, treat others how I'd want to be treated if I was being led. Full stop. Easy. Succinct. Um, can you give me, can you give me a, an example of a role model? Like where is that very 
grounded, solid. You seemed very confident in that answer. So where is that? Where has that come from? Uh, well, for me, I mean, actually, we kind of we get asked when we join the team, you know, who are our role models, uh, people we look up to, all that kind of stuff. And it's really easy. And I think in my interview for the team, I think I picked someone like Tim Peake. And it's really easy to kind of go with someone who is quite well known in the public domain. Um, but actually, when I kind of sat down and thought about it, I thought, who actually are my role models? And it was day-to-day -day people that I was working for. So there are, you know, in the RAF, I'm a flight lieutenant. Uh, above me, there are squadron leaders, so the flight commanders, so they kind of help run the squadron. And then there's a, a squadron commander who's a wing commander. And it was really those people who, if it was in the kind of officer style leadership, it was those people who were kind of that one up from me. Like, how did they lead? What did they do? And a big thing we do in the way we train, not necessarily just on the Reds, but on frontline fighter pilot. Uh, flying is we look at you know what happened why it happened and how do we fix it and so if I saw someone leading something and it was something good you know I kind of try and take lessons from that but if it was something bad you know we try and take away what happened why it happened and, and how would I do that differently and so I started to kind of pick up role models both almost negative and positive role models negative ones who I'd see that I think I don't want to I don't want to be a leader like that person's a leader I want to be a leader like the other person and so I kind of started to try and you know when things would happen and be that you know we you know situations where we're on operational missions and you've got people who are leading the formation you know on potentially big high profile missions and how did that person do what they did how did they deal with something that didn't go quite according to plan um, and how did they approach that situation so those are the kind of role models really that I would use and that would be through you know keeping like to go through training what those people would like be like as instructors i think then back when i went back to being an instructor what were my instructors like what did i like about those instructors what didn't i like what would i do differently and how did i feel when people maybe treated me in a poor way and uh, and so i'd take that stuff and then when i got to the front line and became a frontline fighter pilot again it was the people around me those people who were maybe a year or two ahead of me or further afield like what were they doing how did they do it and you know, what could i learn from them and, or you know in a good way or in a bad way you know to take away and think okay I'm not going to be that kind of leader you know, and, uh, and kind of always looking at myself really kind of self-assessment as to you know how I do that first and foremost before really kind of looking at other people for that. Just a, a follow-up question on that because that that concept of, of treating people how, how you like to be treated or how you'd want to be treated as, as a way of, of leading other people and I completely get that you know, looking at positive role models and, and role models where people have done things that actually maybe aren't quite kind of in line with your North Star and, and bouncing your route up between the two. Uh, when you've been in like in operational environments or, or high stakes environments, how does how does that treat someone like you want to be treated to? How does that play out when when stresses are high, stakes are high? How do you how do you tap into that rather than kind of let the over, over arousal lead to I don't know, a different type of reaction? Um, I think the, the big thing really um, is within the RAF, we have kind of a culture plays a big part of it. So we have a thing called what's called a just culture. So that kind of underpins everything. And that's trying to basically say that ultimately everyone's a human. Everyone makes mistakes. So um, it, it's understanding when people are doing something, no one really is going into work that day to be, um, you know, perform badly everyone wants to do the best they can and it's understanding that and it's clearly there are people potentially who may be say reckless malicious etc but ultimately they're probably not in the type of environment or you know job that we do and so it's that kind of situation where you know that person makes a mistake it's you know again how would i like to treat that mistake and it's asking why you made that mistake or they made that mistake and, and how do we learn from that and it could be ultimately it's just a, a lack of understanding and that could actually then come back onto us as the instructors in that situation to say we were the ones who didn't teach that properly why didn't we teach that properly 
but we didn't have a system set in place and that kind of crosses over into you know to, that could be anything in business it's you know why did that person you know do make that mistake at work well you know actually let's ask them to find out well it turns out they weren't there for that training day why weren't they there for that training day okay well you know we didn't have a system in place to record who turned up for that training day so actually that's under the radar and why didn't that we didn't have a system and again it's okay well the person who used to do that system has left. Why is that person left? And you can literally go on and on and on and dig it into this kind of the why and how do you fix something? And it's ultimately that kind of culture that underpins that, that you can ask those questions and say, and that's not saying that, you know, it's still the military and the military ultimately, if they, you know, you are in a, you know, a system based on rank. So um, you obviously, you know, ultimately can be ordered to do things, but it's trying to get the best out of people. And there are situations which clearly, uh, you know, probably will call for shouting at someone in certain parts of the military. But there are other situations where, do you know what, if I raise my voice and he doesn't say that in, I have to say that again. That could be an extra radio call that I don't need to make. I can make one radio call and hopefully he's efficient as anything and does his job. You know, if I shout it, say it too quickly or whatever it might be, I might say that two, three times and then we're not as efficient. So again, it's all of all of that kind of stuff. It's But it's like everything we do, and especially in the Reds, it's, it's looking at yourself. It's self-criticism criticism first you know so as a leader standing at the front and first of all saying okay i made this mistake why did i make that mistake how do i fix it and then then that hopefully instilling the kind of trust and confidence into the rest of the team to put their hand up as well because they know they can put their hand up um, because they know the culture is there that people can make mistakes they're not going to be necessarily told off straight away um you know if they if they have to make that mistakes because you've kind of instilled that culture within your within your company or your um or your group yeah, I really like that approach so much that the five whys or the root cause analysis really digging into to the root cause of why something's gone wrong rather than just a, a sticking plaster approach. But with the Reds, we'll go back to a proper intro shortly, but I think we'll just jump straight in there with some really great questions. But with, with the Reds or the Red Arrows, when do you get time to really dig into things other than the flying? So I can imagine you, you get down, you debrief and you go through the flying, but you just mentioned in terms of efficiencies like radio calls. When do you get time to look at the other parts that aren't flying necessarily flying related or, or to do with the display sequence because obviously that probably takes up quite a bit of your time that potentially don't have as a team going around the world yeah i mean obviously we have our winter training so from kind of october through till the end of may we are training so for instance today we went through some of the stuff in this the display again and clearly that's led by red one the team leader and then you've got a kind of a deputy almost team leader red six so you've got these people kind of they'll sit down together and work out a plan but at the same time we've got a you know, that's, that's Red One isn't saying people can't give me ideas to how we can make the show a little bit different or a little bit better, you know, with the smoke plan or whatever it might be. He's looking for, and that's what we did stuff in. It was very much a, you know, an open kind of, okay, how do we do this part of the show, you know, with this situation? You know, if we have you know, one less jet, how do we change that? And so he was, you know, looking for those ideas because, again, you're looking for people to be able to say something. Now, it might not necessarily be the correct idea, and you can kind of, again, say why that won't work instead of just saying, no, that's not going to work. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, we literally, we'll brief we don't ever go flying without briefing or debriefing so we'll brief our display then we'll go fly to the display and then we'll debrief that display and again if things like the it's all recorded so you can hear the audio the video and if anything is incorrect in terms of the com then we debrief it there and then and it's corrected um and if there's something like again that's the wrong com then we can look at maybe why it's wrong how we change that and that's the same in the front line as well you know you will um obviously debrief all that kind of stuff now the front line is a lot more information because you've got to you've got computer systems and radars recording certain things so to take all that data and then be able to process that in a, a certain amount of time is, is quite tricky um but ultimately that's why again you're looking for that culture that honesty where people can say put the hand up and say actually i made this mistake in this trip so we don't need to look at the rest of this mission but the big thing i want to really focus on is this one thing because 
that went wrong and this is why I think it went wrong. But actually, let's have a look at it and see how we fix that to stop that happening again. And for someone else to learn from that as well. Again, you know, this um, this isn't just, you know, this person makes a mistake and we hide that away. It's someone may have made a mistake, but actually let's stop someone else making that mistake. And again, that goes into our culture and the safety culture we have in the air, in the Air Force. And you know, it's the same in anything, really. Any kind of team is to, you know, if you make a mistake in training, the thing you're going to want to do is tell other people in training that you made that mistake. If you made a mistake and keep it to yourself and then, you know, you lose your game at the weekend and you think, oh, well, I wish I'd said that. But maybe you didn't have a culture where you thought you could say it. Um, so again, it's the kind of obviously the time and the place to be able to say it. But yeah, it's um, it's definitely the kind of the whole thing we try and implore because it's, again, the back to that self-critique, that kind of honesty in the whole environment because, you know, the, the Hawk is, unlike the frontline aircraft, the Hawk doesn't have much in terms of the way of recording any data from the aircraft. So again, you're looking for that honesty from those pilots to say, this was wrong, I made this mistake in the cockpit. That might not be picked up by the video. Um, and then the rest of the formation can uh, can learn from that. I think a lot of the listeners will be able to take something away from, from that uh, back to the business about how that they can create or emulate that culture, that honest feedback culture or the non-blame culture. Is there anything that you can think of in the Air Force or, or in the, the display team that enables you to do that? Something specifically that, that you do to allow that trust to come out or that vulnerability for people to put their hand up and say, oh, actually, it might be a silly idea, but hey, I'll put it out there. I mean, the trust thing is built into literally everything we do. So, you know, a lot of our maneuvers are, you are, like, for instance, we do one called Detonator and I roll. So you've got red one, then there's red three, then I'm red five and outside of him. And obviously on the other side, you've got red two and red four. And basically on a command, on kind of a voice command, we'll all break away from each other. And so red three obviously trusts that I'm going to go to my angle of bank because he rolls to 30 degrees angle of bank, I roll to 60. And ultimately he's trusting that I'm going to get out of the way because that's what the manoeuvre is, you know. And so there's obviously that trust there for that kind of stuff. Um, in terms of people obviously coming forward to change things, again, it's in fact that's, uh, you know, in the debrief, there's the last part of the debrief, does anyone have any points? You know, and we go around each person and it might be, hey, actually, why do we do that that way? And it might be a reason that's 30 years old, but actually it could be, well, actually, yeah, let's have a look at that. Let's review that. And one thing we do, and I was chatting to someone else about this recently, um, big thing we do in the RF as well is um, what they call a continuous improvement event. So you'll sit down and look at all your kind of practices within a squadron and say, why do we do it that way? You know, is that efficient? You know, do we do it that way because people come out with, that's just the way it's always been yeah. done. <laughs> why change say, it? Well, why? Yeah, exactly. People don't, not, often people don't like change. But actually to say to people, well, you know, actually we can make this more, you know, not a streamlined, because that can be a bad word, but just maybe more efficient. And ultimately, you know, we can kind of get things done more quickly without doing all those other processes. Just because they've been in for 30 years doesn't mean we have to do that. So we will do that kind of stuff as well all the time. And again, that's something that, you know, a business can easily you know, look at you know, themselves of the way they operate, you know, are they doing things um effectively and efficiently uh, because often those kind of things can easily fall under radar because people again get into trends just ways of doing things and that's what and a lot of our stuff comes from you know this kind of culture comes from flying accidents you know and some you know major major accidents like the, the Nimrod crash in Afghanistan in 2006 these things that basically when they investigated that it transpired that things had just been done that way for a long period of time and um and so that was kind of, again, a big thing, big change within the Ministry of Defence was to go away and say, OK, actually, you know, why do we do it that way? Well, because, well, because isn't an excuse. Let's look at how we can change that and, and make ourselves more efficient. And ultimately, like everything we do is be as safe as we can be, which is what's at the forefront of, of all our flying and displays. Yeah, it's normally music to our ears when we hear a client say, oh, why would you want to change it? It's always been done like that. 
So our perfect, there's probably quite a lot we can look at to see if we could make a change then and some efficiencies to be made. Yeah. One thing you just mentioned that would be really interesting just to hear in terms of that sort of gradient between the display team, the pilots and quite imposing red suits. And then you get sort of the engineers and all the support crew, which are vital to the display. Do you ever feel that there's a reluctance to, to say something because of that, not a divide, but actually that the pilots are probably the, the crux of the, the display team. Does everyone else feel that they're in a supporting role and might not necessarily be able to or want to put their hands up or do those squadron wide events actually mean that the pilots are quite vulnerable and open to ideas and it, it brings them everyone onto a level playing field uh and i think everyone kind of i think what i've seen so far in the past few you know my past few tours within the rf is that people do try and speak up if they see something that is wrong and again there's a process that they can do they can put in an, you know a confidential anonymous report to say that you know this has happened this is unsafe or i've seen this and it could be you know, something as minor as anything, because again, the, you know, that one person hopefully puts that in, someone else might say, oh yeah, I saw that as well. And straight away, you found something out that you, you weren't aware of. And it's again, back to that culture of having people, you know, they do put their hand up and say something and you go, well, actually that's, that isn't like what you think it is. You know, it's, um, you know, you, you kind of worried about nothing, but you know, they've potentially highlighted something that could be a serious issue. So I don't think there's um kind of reluctance from, you know, people, so you know in the engineering body to say not to say anything again we've got senior engineers and there's a rank structure there so again they can pass things up the rank chain if they want to um but i think ultimately everyone's quite open to um you know that kind of improvement um notwithstanding the fact you still obviously have a, a rank structure but it's um yeah it's definitely just kind of our, our culture as to how we how we kind of obviously encourage people to do that it's really i find i find this this really uh insightful and interesting from someone who's got I mean you two both have RAF background etc from someone who has, has no military background no 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 flying background to my, my perception of, of of pilots in particular and, and it's been dispelled massively here um it's not bad Patrick don't worry <laughs> but my perception is that I mean what you've just described is is vulnerability is ongoing continuous improvement uh like re reaching for feedback and all i've literally heard i think in the last 20 minutes we've been talking is feedback loop after feedback loop after encouraged feedback loop iteration of process iteration of system way of working and and for me i'm like well this is like this is kind of music to our ears when we're working with a leadership team or a group of new leaders or a business that's looking to scale really fast um a lot of the time, the systems or the processes, they've kind of just become, you know, there's been some some funding or, or product market fit in the business environment. And they've done, right, well, let's just, this is the quickest way we think we can do this now with 50 people. Then all of a sudden, before they know it, they're 250 people or a thousand people, and they're still using the same way of leadership or the same way of teamwork or the same way of decision making. And so I think there's some real value here for for our, our clients and, and the people listening to the podcast that actually I'm really like quite intrigued by the amount of, of continuous feedback and and the way that you iterate so I have a question off the back of that that thought process and, and the question is um it sounds like there's there's a big emphasis on on the briefing um then you you go and you go and fly and then you and then you debrief what, what's the ratio do you think in terms of time spent in the air versus time spent briefing and preparing and time spent debriefing? Uh, so 
today, for instance, we what we were taking off at say nine o'clock. We started briefing at quarter past eight. We briefed for about twenty minutes, and what we'll do is we'll talk through the whole display. So we'll literally say from positioning crowd rear, start full, and the boss will the boss's red one. He'll do all these kind of radio commands, and we will kind of talk about what our errors were on the last trip and how we fixed that. So that could have been I turned a little bit too late, so I need to go early with my turn. Um, because that late turn put me in the wrong position or whatever it might be. And we'll talk through that whole, it's the whole display from literally start to finish, the takeoff and landing. Um, and then we'll walk out to the jets, get in them, start them up maybe 15 minutes before takeoff, taxi out, take off, maybe fly for 30 minutes, land, come back in, and then we'll watch in real time that whole process, so the whole display back through. So you could be in that debrief for 45 minutes, debriefing the half hour I've just done. Uh, and that's the same for the front line. You could have maybe flown for an hour 45 on a front line mission, maybe longer, uh, but you could then spend potentially three or four hours then pulling apart what you've just done to work out why. And you know you could get to the final part of the mission and actually you can take that mistake at the final part of the mission all the way back to the start of the mission as to something that maybe has gone wrong in the brief or the plan and, and work out why uh, so that the next time it doesn't happen. So yeah, we're spending quite a lot of time doing the debrief. And, but again, we're trying to be succinct with what we're saying in the debrief we're not really kind of trying to waffle on or talk too long we're trying to kind of pick out the bits so we can move on because we do it three times a day so that whole process by the time you've started it you know i think so this morning we started quarter past seven sorry so our first takeoff was kind of quarter past eight and then you do that three times before you know it it's half three and then you've got other stuff to do potentially so it's um you have to get through it relatively quickly but again trying to pick out the, the big points which again is that kind of self-critical part of the debrief which is really important so it almost seems like the the actual flying is probably like 20 percent of what you do and the, the planning and the debrief is almost 80 percent, which is probably 180 out to to quite a few businesses 80 percent is, is the product or the service that they're offering or deploying and and then 20 percent is probably the, the the debrief or the post project analysis and just seeing what they could do better but it's that's rarely that people have the capacity to do it so it's great to hear that you force yeah. yourselves to to have that it's, it's an interesting one because like so i've, I've probably done I, I do, i've done a fair bit of work with with sales organizations on 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 sales enablement work and, and this ties in so closely with the the tech that 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 kind of sales people use nowadays to record teams calls and zoom calls and you can use you can use plugins now to to understand emotional responses from people on 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 sales calls we're not doing this to you now patrick it's okay <laughs> um but um but when when we when we analyze and work with those businesses that have a higher success in terms of the amount of, of effort they put in or the amount of calls or meetings um, and the return on that investment, it's not a mistake. I, I don't think that the teams that practice more and do those you know briefings and debriefings or pre-mortems and post-mortems as some businesses we've worked with have called them, um, they get better success because they iterate. Their, their performance and it just it kind of marries onto that that high performance kind of process that, that you've, you've talked about just there yeah i agree i think we've worked out that paddy's part of the red arrows but it'd be great to hear actually how you ended up on the red arrows i think we, we dive straight into I, a pretty deep line of okay. questioning yeah, um, yeah. it'd be great to hear how you ended up speaking to us today um you've alluded that you're obviously you're part of the red arrows uh, the display team how did you end up flying with them what was the journey journey to today so for me, it kind of started when I was 18. So I uh, went off to uni and I always had an interest in, in the RAF. And so a friend of mine said, if, you, if you're keen on the RAF, you know, join the uh, university air squadron. So I 
went up and joined the UAS and it was then kind of you everyone who joined kind of got to learn to fly and I never really thought that I would kind of end up kind of in the RAF as a pilot and they got to my second year and they said if you want to stay for a third year you have to apply for a bursary so I went for a bursary I was fortunate enough to, to get a pilot bursary for my final year and then joined the RAF in 2006 with yourself obviously same same flight on the same day and then yeah I kind of obviously did the officer training finished that in March 07 finished my flying training well by my basic training I was lucky enough to, to get um street fly uh, fast jets uh went to fly to Carlo the Hawk then went off to fly the Tornado GR4 spent four years flying that uh, then became an instructor for two years, teaching back on the Hawk T1, which is what we find the team uh, now. Uh, then I went to fly the Eurofighter Typhoon for five years, and I uh, was an instructor on, on that. And then, um, yeah, I was fortunate to get in the Reds in 2021. So I'd actually been applying for a few years, and I got my first chance at kind of the, the, the selection in 2019, but didn't get in. Um, but yeah. Covid, there was no selection the following year, but then the year afterwards when it reopened, uh, I went back from my kind of second go and uh, was lucky enough to get in. So. Did Did they tell you why you didn't get in the first time when when you managed to get into the team? Was there something um, specific that they were looking for, or no, no, nothing really. Um, the people who kind of who were on the same selection that had been before a few of them, they got the experience. Um, but no, there was nothing really kind of said to me that this was the the thing to fix. Uh, the selection is quite weird, so you. You spend a week with the team, um, so we'll have the new, well, the, this year's applicants coming out to join us in about two weeks in Greece, um, and you spend the week and you fly in every position within the Reds, so it's quite a tiring week, so you fly three times a day, five days a week, which coming from something like the Typhoon, where you maybe fly every other day, you might fly for five, six hours, but the whole kind of getting thrown around the back of the jet again is, is quite tiring, um, and then you will basically fly with either Red 8 or Red 9, who are the kind of deputy so like deputy team leader, kind of the executive officer. And they'll basically assess you on a flying test. So at the end of a full practice display, you will, Red 1 will peel away from the formation. Everyone else goes and lands. And you're with, say, Red 8 or Red 9, and you will go off and do your flying test. And they'll basically, Red 8 or 9 gives you control and says, right, Red 1's going to call for the loop. And he says, pulling up, and you do a loop on his wing. And he does another one. And then he does a barrel where he pulls up and he rolls towards you. Do you two of those then he moves you a bit closer again you do two more loops two more rolls and you get no feedback whatsoever it's literally the guy takes control and that's it there's no like oh that was really nice that was really bad that was middle of the road it was just nothing and again in that they're looking for kind of self-critique to say oh okay i think i did that badly i'm going to try and work on that and stuff and so you land from that and you kind of you just kind of go oh, i don't know how i did i could have done badly i could have done well uh, and then you have a formal interview as well so you'll sit down with group captain a wing commander and a squad leader and they will interview you about your career the the team stuff to do with the strategy of the team and how it all fits in with you know the uk's kind of foreign office policy whatever it might be loads of different things uh, and you have to be able to kind of obviously answer all those and then um kind of after all of that there's obviously a, a decision process and you either get in or you don't so yeah obviously first time i didn't but then second time thankfully i did I think we need to up our interview game. Well, it sounds pretty benign compared yeah. to that. Yeah, so how do you find out? Do you get a WhatsApp? You're back. Yeah, I got a phone call from our station commander to say I hadn't got in. In 2021, when I got in, I was actually eating dinner at home, and it was Tuesday night about half seven, and I think somehow the decision had been leaked about who'd got in, <laughs> and so there was a bit of a panic. They weren't going to tell us till Friday, so we'd got home on the Friday night, We were because it was COVID, we were in isolation, so I wasn't allowed to go to work, and on the... Saturday, Sunday, they obviously decided who they wanted. They told RAF Manning, so the human resources in the RAF, on the Monday who they wanted. And it's somehow been leaked because they weren't going to tell us until Friday. 
but there was a, a kind of few urgent phone calls uh, about <laughs> half seven round people to say you've got it or you haven't got it. Yeah. Um, so I remember literally it was like kind of Peter K. Cell, my phone rang, <laughs> another number, and I was like, Who, who's, who's ringing? I was, I was like, I'm not going to bother answering, but <laughs> I did. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and that was it. Yeah. So do you think that's like the pinnacle of your career? Were you always striving for that? Was this what you'd always focused on? Or actually, when you're on the typhoons, I'm sorry, though, was that the pinnacle of your career back then? And it just keeps shifting? Or had you always wanted to, to reach this point? I kind of always wanted to, yeah, be in the reds. It was always kind of my kind of end goal that I always wanted to do. Um, but I think like in any job, you'll always have something that you want to achieve, you know, the next year. Actually, because I think ultimately, if you have no goal, maybe at the end of that, and you kind of go, and I felt a little bit like this when I got through flying training. I kind of, it was always finish flying training, get to the end of flying training. And I know you kind of talk about these kind of, you know, the kind of the full summit. And it was a little bit that like that with flying training. I was like, get to the end of flying training. And I kind of got to the end and I was a bit, oh, I've finished flying training now. I'm on the front line. I don't really know what my, my next kind of thing is. And so it was a little bit like, a little bit like that. So I think yeah, if you don't have something that you're kind of aiming at, it kind of makes it a little bit more difficult maybe to, to mold what you, because before you know it, you know, you don't have a goal for that year. And then you finish that year and you think I've wasted all the chances that I could have maybe done courses or whatever it might be to help me. And then you get to the end of that tour. And that's what I tried to say to the, the junior guys who were on Typhoon. I said, if you can do all you can do now, when you get to the end of your three years, your first thing you'll have is more options because you'll hopefully give yourself more avenues to go down. If you do nothing, you'll get there and think, oh, I wish I'd done X, Y, and Z. And then when the RAF says you're going to work here, you won't really have any kind of argument because you'll, you'll be able to, you can't, you'll be like, I don't have any kind of qualifications to not go there kind of thing so um yeah i always kind of almost say to them meet you if you can shape your own kind of destiny it's a lot better than being on the back foot and again getting sent somewhere that you don't want to go i think that ties in really nicely um to, to one of the first the three questions that i had for you i know we've just covered an awful lot of questions but it, it relates back to you mentioned uh, self-critique and how that how important it was especially for your test flight or for your interview test flights in terms of that self-leadership self-critique comes into it but and this will probably help aspiring pilots or anyone who wants to end up in the Reds, but also looking at high-performing businesses and teams. How important is self-leadership, do you think, in terms of how you operate on a daily basis, but also within a high-performing team like the Reds? So that element of self-leadership. So, I mean, on a, on a daily basis, obviously, I'm you know in a formation, I'm, I'm led by someone else, but probably um, there's still that kind of discipline to go away and, you know, because again, the debrief is quite short and you have to get kind of everything done. There's still definitely stuff that you have to go away and self-discipline to go away and say, oh, okay, I'm going to read up on this now because I know last time I did it, you know, I didn't really know much about it. And I think the way I kind of always often thought that on the front line was if I was in a brief or a debrief, if I knew there was something that I didn't want to be asked, I'd normally try and go away and at least have a read of that subject afterwards. Because you kind of sit through the brief or the debrief thinking, I hope he doesn't ask me that. I hope he doesn't ask me that because I'm not really that confident with that. And it turns out that like, most people probably aren't either. But if you can kind of go away and go, okay, well, I'm going to read that and just maybe then come back and try and steer the conversation to that subject and show that I read it maybe. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of self-discipline and kind of your self-leadership to go away and kind of, you know, make sure that, you know, you are kind of obviously doing things, you know, be disciplined with yourself because it's very easy to go away and just sit down and, and not do that. And um, and again, that's something we always try to say to the more junior guys on, on the squadron as well. Uh, I think that's a big difference between business and the military as well. And I always try and bring up war stories, as it were, about the importance of checklists and then for businesses like terms of reference and, and having having that in place, uh, job specs, terms of reference, yeah, those checklists, so that exactly when when the pressure does build up and you find yourself in a challenging scenario, actually you've put in the effort, that self-leadership to go away and practice the, the little things that you find challenging, but also make sure that you know your checklist or you know your, your terms of reference or how to conduct your job to the minute detail is so important and something that we try and 
get across from our backgrounds, quite often businesses don't have in place. And it's only when they really push for that high performance stage or they find themselves in quite challenging times, then the cracks appear because they haven't spent that time going away and getting the small things done to the best of their ability. Uh, I've got a goose story that I always bring up about at the E3 when the, uh, one of my colleagues hit, hit a goose, uh, but it wasn't a critical failure of the aircraft in the end. There's no fatalities because everyone had the job to do. Everyone trusted each other to do that job and knew that they'd spent that time, as you said, going through the checklists because they didn't want the embarrassment of not knowing it in front of their peers, but also in a life or death situation, they could be trusted to carry out that checklist to the best of their ability. Um, so yeah, I think from what you just said, that really reiterates what we try and implore. I can't believe you got the goose story. In I, I had to, yeah, just for those. Honestly, you... Patrick, this goose pops up in every, I, I can be running, uh, like I can, I can be facilitating a, a leadership session and, and the goose will just pop up because Ben's been using that deck before. And I don't have the goose story. So it just, just I'm just like, just, just move on. But um, goose aside, there, there's one bit that resonated for me massively in what you said, which was um, if you're in a meeting, I mean, you talked about being in a debrief and not wanting to be asked on that about that topic and then going away and, and, and look at and making sure that you were prepped for, for the next time that came up. And I think for me, that's that's a really big self-leadership lesson. Like if you are... If, if you are a manager or a leader and you, you're running a team meeting or a team kickoff in your business and you, someone asks you that question that you kind of you kind of bluff your way through a bit, I think that model of self-leadership is then, right, I need to take note of that. I need to go away and make sure that, that I'm ready for that the next time. And I think that's a really good message for, for people listening. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And following on from that, I was going to ask, well, the question we normally ask, our, uh, our guess is what's the most high performing team you've been a part of and I think I pretty much know the answer unless actually you've been part of another high performing team that wasn't the Reds that you're going to change it but moving on from that I think do you have three things that you could identify as to why the Reds are so high performing or perform so highly there are three things that stand out I think trust is probably one of them from what you're saying is there another another two that just in, yeah, yeah, in, in your own words are three words that we could take away Two words, but kind of trying to get self-critique. So it's always kind of looking at um, yourself, you know, as to you know, instead of pointing the finger at other people first, is kind of saying, you know, actually, was that was that my fault, you know, and, and why? And then and then the other kind of one that kind of obviously links into that and really underpins it is in the honesty. So an honest debrief is what we are always looking for and so people to be able to say yes I did that because the biggest thing as well and that goes back onto the front line as well because if you know you won't necessarily have all the time so like I said earlier on to watch someone's tape of their calling and sound type unit would record all their sensors and systems and, and ultimately if they're lying to you about something and then you happen to watch their tape uh, and see that they were actually they weren't telling the truth about what happened include that then straight away that trust is gone uh, and that person's probably going to have to be monitored more closely so yeah so clear the trust the self-critique and, and the honesty is that are the three things i think that you know when people come watch us brief and debrief and we have corporate visitors you know that's the kind of thing we always try and show and, and that hopefully they they take away to their businesses is, is you know is all that part of it is the honest honest thing and i know that from the outside when we have other pilots you know who in the RAF can fly with us do you find i think sometimes think we're a bit critical and a bit harsh to each other but it's nothing it's, it's never personal so in the debrief we only call each other by a number so in the debrief they'll only refer to me as number five they won't say my actual name and what we're trying to do is ultimately once a debrief is finished then you know it's it's stopped you know you can still talk about stuff about the trip but you're you're basically trying to 
obviously almost depersonalize that debrief and pull that away just because you're trying to look for again the safety critical things and the things that's going to make the formation better and that's the same on the, on the front line as well so once you step out of that mission debrief you know you might have not been necessarily um you know you're saying not nice to each other but you're always trying to be you know there's clearly a difference between bullying someone and you know uh, being constructive but you always try to be constructive people and try and work out why things happened and how they fix that um but once you step out of that debrief then you know a lot of the time you know you are back to being friends again in the crew and having a chat and because it could be that actually the person you just debriefed is actually a higher rank than you because you are more qualified on the aircraft than they are newer so um yeah so they're kind of the three things already it's that trust that self-critique and, and the honesty and those three things kind of go hand in hand as to what we do here on the on the reds and you know how we try and make ourselves as as best as we can be uh throughout the you know the training and then and the display season this this training doesn't the brief and debrief doesn't stop throughout the year so even when we get our qualification to display in a few weeks we'll always still brief and debrief every show and look at what happened why it happened and how do we make that show better and that's always always done and it no matter what it is it could be a three or four displays in a day we're doing and no matter what we will always debrief talk about the previous display and watch the video if we can as to what happened in that display and how we make it better. I think we're aligned in what we practice and preach and tell our clients in terms of that, that trust and honesty. One of the questions that always come back is, but how do you how do you get that trust in the very first instance? So when you dig into those sort of five whys or the root cause, how do you build that trust when you get a new team member? And then the next question that comes up is, should we give our trust 100% to that person or should we allow it to be earned? And I think just to round off this little line of questioning, when you join the team, do you think, your peers, colleagues, the bosses, do they trust you 100%? You get into that jet and they trust you or do you have to prove yourself over the the training trips and the training sorties in the work up to the display? How do you feel when you join the team? Are you trusted or do you have to earn their trust? I think they they obviously, yeah, I think you are trusted to a certain extent. Clearly, um, what they might not have as much trust or confidence in is you fly in a manoeuvre because you haven't really flown it much before. So understandably, you know, when you're learning something, it might take a little bit of time to get that. So for instance, Red 3 was the new guy this year and I fly outside of him. So if he's moving around all over the place, then I might not trust that he's going to hold those errors. And so I might sit a little bit further away than I would do now, for instance, because I've flown on his wing a lot more. I, I can trust that if he does something slightly out of position, he's going to hold that error um, and not kind of widen out into me. So that trust is clearly there i think we need to start but it obviously grows throughout the training season um and it kind of goes again back to our selection so when we select people we'll have seen all their reports from ever since they joined the RAF. so you can start to make out you know what someone's character is like whether or not they are kind of you know an individual that would fit in necessarily within the team um in terms of trust or whether or not we you know might think actually this person you know they're you know a, a brilliant pilot may not be the person for, for this team not because um we don't like them just because actually that person may themselves put their hands up and say you know what after the visa process i i don't want to be a part of this or or it might be so yeah there's definitely the trust there when you, when you start but it just grows throughout the season and it will just keep growing and growing and growing really. and um, it's um it's kind of you know we've all got the, the kind of same common goal which is you know having a a safe and thrilling display you know, for the public. Nice. Thanks very much for that. Um, I think, and you alluded to this earlier on in terms of the support crew, uh, the, the engineers and the, I think you call them the circus, don't you? In terms of, for, for the people at home and listening that might not necessarily have direct reports or might not necessarily be in a, a leadership role, actually followership is going to be really important in terms of becoming a high-performing team or maintaining that high performance. And that'd be just really interesting as the last sort of question to hear from you, your, your response. Do you think you you make a good follower being on the team? Do you have to be a good follower? And do you have any examples of where actually you, you might not be a leader 
actually you've concentrated on that followership and that's been critical to the high performance of the team or back on your operational tools as well being a follower yeah i think like definitely i think everyone and that's the thing of the, the way the rf works you know you're training like you remember from officer training you train say 100 officers technically all be told you, you are the leader but then it's like well there's only say four teams that's maybe on that squadron so you can't have 100 leaders trying to lead four teams you know you have to have people who you know can follow sometimes and they'll clearly be better leaders than they'll be other people you know we all see i think people in everyday walk of life where you think that guy's a natural leader just you know without even doing anything he could just lead anyone around and um you know but at the same time you need to be able to follow someone and it's the same and so the front lifeline we do you might have a full ship of typhoons going out and normally what you'd have in that is you'd have your number one aircraft which has got your your formation leader he's called the full ship leader and number two might be a junior guy number three might be a, a senior guy who's leading the back pair and number four might be a junior guy but you could also then end up with a situation where you've got a newly qualified leader and i'm obviously a qualified leader as well but i'm just further down the back of the formation now i can probably see a situation arising i think i wouldn't do it that way i would do it this way but at the same time that new leader's got to lead and learn how to lead as well so it's not just jumping in and saying okay well i'm going to do it this way I, I think you're wrong straight away which i've seen people do straight away as soon as something goes slightly off course they're jumping in and then the guy for the rest of the time or girl is just reactive leadership because they know that the more experienced person is going to pipe in when they need to and that can lead to kind of safety critical situations happening so it's that kind of followership in that situation on the front line sort is where you have to sometimes just say okay i'm not going to step in here unless i unless it's safety critical i'm not going to step in i'm going to let this person find out their own way of leading and then in the debrief as well look at why that happened and and if they can't find that you know you try and steer them back to why it happened and it could go all the way back to the plan where they brief something slightly wrong and it went all their mission was built on that foundation which is wrong but again yeah and again and it's you know you can you can stop it in the plan maybe but again if you're trying to bring something out you can maybe let things go a little bit further but it's you know it's that followership to kind of in that situation to be able to say okay i'm going to let someone do it but then it's also followership where you know i might be the less qualified person but i'm not gonna and we probably all know these people who straight away try and chip in with you know or get quite moody because they're not in the lead or their plans not being you know implemented and it's it's kind of been able to you know in that situation step back and say okay i might not agree with the way they did but i'm going to be a good follower because we've all got the common goal which is you know whatever that mission might be to get from a to b we're all in that together and if we don't work as a team then we're not going to get to b and the mission will fail you know so it's it's kind of in all that situation you know and then again because we have the the debrief where people all get their say so in that debrief i can then at an appropriate time say actually could we do it this way and then we maybe look at it and go yes that would have worked or no that was a bad idea and then i think i'm glad i didn't say it you know so uh, and again it's, it's that whole culture where people can say you know how about this and then you can kind of take okay i'll take your opinion on board but in this situation we have to just go with you know option one for whatever reason so yeah there's lots of times where being a good follower is really, really key um and it's knowing when and when not to be a good follower sometimes in times where as you probably saw like you know maybe say to critical times where you think i can see things going wrong and if i don't say anything you know will i get kind of told off and not say anything so i might say something i might sound like a bit of an idiot and it might be wrong but at least i've hopefully given them you know an input yeah exactly exactly and it's and again i've said it so many times it's that whole culture of just not being afraid to put your hand up and say how about this and it's obviously knowing when uh but yeah just allowing people to maybe um have the kind of confidence to put their hand up and not be scared of you know saying how about we do it this way as well yeah, there's lots of keywords coming out there that people can resonate with. So the common goal, trust, honesty, yeah, that not well, having the belief in themselves and the confidence. So it's uh, it's good to hear that you've 
Yeah, you've, you've mentioned all of those and we haven't asked you to say that as well, which is, which is great to hear. So yeah, imparting that back to the businesses that are listening too. Yeah, and I think, um, I think that comes full circle. Like your description and, and definition there of followership comes back to kind of question one, which was like in one sentence, how, how would, you, would you describe your philosophy ethos around, around leading people? And you said, you know, very succinctly and very quickly, it was about treating people as you would want them to treat you. And I think you've just kind of emulated that back in, in the followership piece as well, actually. If, if you wanted someone to help, if you wanted to learn, you'd want someone to give you some space to learn. And bar there being anything, you know, catastrophic that's going to happen because of your actions, often we, we learn best from having a go and, and failing and, and doing that, getting that feedback loop. So I think that, that ties, in to, ties in really nicely, Patrick. Thank you. Um, before we let you go, um, to enjoy the rest of, rest of your evening, we've got our final question. So this is, this is our West Peak question. So we named West Peak for a reason. Um, there are several mountains that have false peaks or second summits. And the summits, they look like the peak, the goal, the objective. Um, and when a tiny, tired mountaineer reaches them and sees the real peak that is obscured, um, they, they kind of feel a bit deflated because they've realized they've got so much more to achieve. Um, and we think this translates directly into skill acquisition in business, sport and life where someone learns a little bit. Um, we then try and apply it in the real world and we go, wow, like the, that bit I know is a tiny little piece of a much bigger picture and people can get deflated. And we think for us, that's when people need coaching support, you know, support of mentors, et cetera, to be able to help them kind of get through that conscious incompetence bit or, or, or conscious micro competence, maybe. So my question to you is, um, we ask all of our guests can you can you recall and describe a West Peak moment in your career to date? Yeah, so for me, really, it, it's kind of you know, it's been there's been a few, but the one that stands out recently is is the training we do with the Reds. So you join the team, you get requalified in the Hawk, and then you kind of start at three aircraft doing loops and rolls, and then you add a fourth aircraft, fifth aircraft, and you start building up the display, and it it becomes a bit of a slog the winter training because you're just learning stuff and then you kind of get taught everything and you kind of taught it all by march time and you think yes i now know everything and it's like kind of like that first kind of you know you think oh there's there's the top there's you know the end i've been taught everything and then you come on this you know the spring training and it's the realization that there's so much more to not to necessarily learn about the display but the polish to put on that display to make that display you know, to get to the next peak and it's as a second year pilot on the team now with the, the first year pilots we've got now they've kind of experienced that a few times over the past couple of months where they kind of think we've kind of got to a certain stage and then they get taught something new and it's like oh, okay well, like we're just, we're just one step further again and then they kind of get taught something new again and it's one step further and it's kind of again trying to remind them about you know okay in a few weeks time you'll have your red do you know you'll be playing around the uk flying over london for the coronation you know there's it's kind of that end goal and and the feelings that i felt last year as well saying to them you know this is normal to feel this way when you feel a bit deflated at the end of the day where the, the missions haven't gone very well you know you've been you know you kind of you've picked yourself up for so many kind of mistakes whatever you just think you're not getting it it's kind of that you know you got to that first peak and you know the next one kind of final one is in sight but yeah there's definitely so many times when you go through the training on the team that you think oh, i'm just about near the top and then you no know, you get something else gets thrown at you and you realize that it's not quite there and then even when you think you've been shown all the you know the maneuvers that you can do on the team there's then the kind of final peak which is putting the polish on it all to make it a real symmetrical smooth accurate flying display which takes so long and we're still not over there yet so we're uh, hopefully in a few weeks time we're there but this is i mean we've been here a week and we've been you know we've gone from i know 
the standard at the start of the week last week, which wasn't great. And now already within a week of, you know, so much further on, but we're still, yeah, not quite at that peak yet. We're still a few, a few weeks away from it, I think, at the moment. But hopefully it's kind of starting to appear just about. But on the horizon brilliant well thank you so much patrick thank you for your time i know you've taken taken an hour or so out of out of recovery time and probably some some debrief uh learning time as well um we've learned we've learned loads i know it's been good for 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 you and ben to to connect again and i think so much of what you've talked about and what you shared from from your career today and your experience it really lands in in the world of business and and hopefully some of our, our listeners who are aspiring or emerging leaders or leaders of, of teams and businesses can take something away from, I think, the, the cyclical feedback nature, the, the honesty, the communication and the, and the trust, I think, has come out time and time again. Yeah, I think it's really going to be like affirmational that the, the things that they thought they need to be doing, but probably aren't assigning the, the time that they should be. Actually, we can hear that almost the best team in the world are assigning that sort of 80% to what goes on before the flights and after as well to create such a high performing team. Yeah, so thank you. It's been a great insight. Really interesting and great to see you again after all this time. Um, yeah, I hope you have a great rest of the, the rest of the evening and look forward to seeing you, no doubt, over the skies around the UK sometime soon. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us on the How They Lead podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and learned something new about the world of high performance. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. And don't forget to subscribe to the How They Lead podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. Until next time, keep pushing yourself to reach your full potential and evolve the way you perform. And remember, just because something has always been done a certain way, doesn't mean doing it a new way can't work.